Hi there. I'm the host of the Beyond Bizarre True Crime podcast. You're listening to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, a podcast about true crime in schools. So join Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host, as she presents the bad apples within the school system. You'll hear school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable, and outright bizarre. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. My name is Anna Thomas and we're up to episode 54. But before we get into the story, let's say hello to some of the members of our Facebook group and we've had so many people join lately. I've got a huge long list that I'm trying to get through. So if I haven't said your name, I will get to you eventually, but I just keep getting more and more people, which is not a bad thing. So hello to Floriana Pizzuli, Selban Samir, Christy Vice Foray, Lindsay Kisa Tanaka, and Stacey Lynn. And also another person who has taken the time to write a review of the podcast, and it says, Well-Balanced True Crime Tales, a different approach to the true crime genre, the host compassionately and thoughtfully covers stories of school-related crimes, the balance between good and bad stories keeps it less intense than other podcasts. The host has a beautifully soothing voice and the audio quality is well done. Her passion for students as an actual teacher comes through, as does her kindness and empathy for all. I don't know what to say really, but um, thank you to Day Old News. All of this praise, I tell you, it might go to my head one day. Um, when she mentioned about the soothing voice, believe me, when my teacher voice comes out, it's not quite so soothing as my kids will tell you. But no, I'm not really. I'm not really a screamer and a yeller and a shouter. I just use a very stern voice. So if you get onto my bad side, you're going to hear my stern voice. But luckily, none of you have. All right. So the country that we are going to visit today is Tonga, as the story took place in Tonga. Tonga's official name is the Kingdom of Tonga, and it's comprised of 170 islands located in the South Pacific Ocean. It's near to Fiji and Samoa and east from Australia. If you are from Australia like me, you would know that we have a whale-watching season off the eastern coast between June and October. There are a number of whale-watching tours, which I've been on one, and the whales make their journey from Antarctica and head north to the warmer waters of Tonga where they breed, give birth and raise their young and then return to Antarctica. This journey is about 5,000 kilometres or 3,000 miles. One of the islands in Tonga didn't have a postal service because there was nowhere to land due to its rocky coastline. So, they came up with a way to get mail and supplies from passing ships. So a good swimmer would swim out to the ship and they would throw him a biscuit tin which contained mail and supplies. If the people wanted to send mail, 
the swimmer would tie the tin box to the end of a very long stick and pass it to the ship. The island used to be called Tin Can Island. The British navigator Captain James Cook is famous in Australia for sailing along and mapping the eastern coastline of Australia. He also went to Tonga and named it the Friendly Islands. He named it this because the island's chief organised a feast for him. But what Captain Cook didn't know was that the feast had actually been planned to ambush and loot his ship. But for some reason, luckily, the plan fell through. As part of Tongan culture, if a mother has too many sons, she will raise one of them as a daughter so that they can help out with the chores. This practice is called Fakalite and can also be a lifestyle choice for some people and is welcomed in Tongan society. So let's go on to the story today. It's called Shipwrecked. The schoolboys stole a boat. What happened next? The story today is so fascinating. It's a true story, but what makes it fascinating is that what happened is very similar to a fictional story, which was the basis of a very well-known novel and movie. As we know, some movies are based on true events. However, in this case, the fictional novel came first, and then the real-life story came after. Now, I could tell you the novel and the movie that I'm talking about, but I'm not going to do that. As a storyteller, I prefer to build the tension. Sometimes when I listen to podcasts, the story will be summarised right at the start, which really spoils it for me. So, I'm going to keep you in suspense. The story I'm going to tell occurred 55 years ago, yet it only became public just a few months ago. A Dutch historian named Rutger Bregman uncovered the story and subsequently wrote a book, which will be released this year. He has given various media interviews in recent weeks with an outline of the story. So I've tried to gather as much as I can with the limited information provided, as of course the book will tell the story in more detail. But before we get into the story, it's important to know about one of the Tongan islands called Atta Island. It's the southernmost island out of all of the islands, separated from the nearest island by 160 kilometres of ocean. It's 1,200 feet high with a very rugged landscape, with tall cliff faces which are pounded by the surf. There are only small sections of narrow beaches, with many large rocks and boulders, so basically, when you come to the island, you are greeted with sheer cliff faces. However, there are some small narrow caves in the cliffs at the water's edge. It's certainly not what you would imagine as a beautiful tropical island with golden beaches. Despite its isolation and ruggedness, people did live on the island. They lived in a village called Colomale. There was a steep trail from the beach which went up 100 metres to the village. Why the people came there is not known 
and how they managed to survive in the desolate conditions is also unknown, yet they did. What is known is that the people's quiet existence was interrupted by a whaling ship called the Grecian under the command of a British man named Captain Thomas McGrath. The interactions turned out to be so tragic. The incident happened back in 1863. The British visitors made contact with the people on Atta and noted how their settlement was located on a small plateau at the top of one of the cliffs with bananas, sugarcane and coconut trees and also melons, yams and potatoes. They intended to trade goods with each other, so the Atans collected their goods and scaled the pathway down to the beach and boarded the ship. The captain then invited them down below deck where the ship's cook had prepared a meal for them. However, the trapdoors to the deck were then shut and locked and the Atans were taken prisoners. The ship left never to return and the Atans were sold as slaves. Fortunately, some of the people remained, which is how we know about what happened. They were then taken back to Tonga and resettled on another island. Their new village was also called Colomeo, and from that point on, the island of Atta was left uninhabited. So, let's now get into the story. It happened in Tonga back in 1966, and at the centre of the story were six schoolboys ranging in age from 13 to 16. Their names were Sione, Stephen, Colo, David, Luke and Mano, and they were all pupils at a Catholic boarding school in the capital city of Tonga. One day the boys were at school and they were bored. That day they were supposed to be having school exams, but instead they yearned for some excitement and then came up with a crazy idea to steal a boat and to go on a fishing trip. They planned to sail to Fiji, which was about 500 miles away, or maybe even go to New Zealand. They took a 20-foot whaling boat from a man that they knew but disliked. They gathered up some food, such as bananas and coconuts, and headed off that night, after taking the boat during the darkness. To go to Fiji, they had to head north, but during the night, they had fallen asleep, and a storm hit. The boat sail was shredded, and the rudder broke. The boat then drifted for days and days, according to the wind direction. The boys had no idea where they were, as they hadn't taken maps or a compass with them. The boat started taking on water, and although they kept bailing out the water, they only just managed to stay afloat. Their food eventually ran out, and they had no choice but to catch and eat raw fish. They were able to hollow out the coconuts that they had brought with them and managed to collect water when it rained. After drifting for eight days, they finally saw land in the distance. They didn't know it, but it was the Atta Island. As they got closer, one of the boys decided to try to swim to shore. Although he was lethargic due to the lack of food and water, 
He managed to make it, and the rest of the boys followed after. After landing on shore, the boys noticed the tall cliffs, rocks and boulders, which extended to the shore. There was only a narrow stretch of beach, and it seemed that there was no way to climb up the cliffs to reach the top of the island. On the first night, they managed to shelter in a narrow cave. They caught and ate raw fish, coconuts, and sucked out seabird eggs. They continued to be trapped between the sea and the cliffs until, after days of exploring, they managed to find a way up the rocks and the cliffs to the top of the island. And they were amazed at what they found. There were pools of fresh water and plenty of food, such as bananas, coconuts, pawpaw, taro, oranges and beans. They didn't know it at the time, but it was thanks to the earlier inhabitants that they had this abundance of food. After exploring further, they found an ancient volcanic crater and could not believe what they found there. Chickens, yes, chickens. It had been a hundred years since the people had left the island and the chickens had continued to multiply. So the boys had plenty of food and water, but days turned into weeks and despite keeping a lookout, they never saw any passing ships. They managed to keep a fire going day and night and took turns in watching for boats. Eventually, they decided to make a raft, but the first attempt to leave the island resulted in the raft being destroyed by the crashing surf. After weeks and months had passed, the boys had settled into a routine of life on the island. They worked in pairs and created rosters for cooking, tending to the gardens, collecting water and keeping guard. They managed to hollow out tree trunks to keep water and also constructed chicken pens, a badminton court and even a gymnasium, making weights and other equipment from rocks and branches. A guitar was even made from driftwood and a coconut shell and wire was used as the strings which had been salvaged from their wrecked boat. At the end of each day, they would play music and say prayers to keep their spirits lifted. One day, one of the boys slipped and fell down the cliff and broke his leg, which they managed to set with sticks. Their lives on the island was a constant struggle to stay sane and alive. Although the boys had quarrels, they developed a timeout system where they would separate from each other until they cooled off. The boys had settled into their routine on the island when suddenly they saw a sight that they had all but given up on seeing, a boat. By that time, they had been on the island for 15 months. Can you believe it? The captain of the ship was a man from Australia named Peter Warner. He was on one of his fishing trips sailing around the islands of Tonga when he came upon the island of Atta. Peter noticed as he looked out at the island that there appeared to be a burnt patch on the cliffs. Before I go on to explain what happened next, it's important to know some background information about Peter. 
Peter was the son of one of the richest and most powerful men in Australia back in the 1930s. His father owned the corporation Electronic Industries. His grandfather had founded the company back when home entertainment started taking off. The company manufactured the Mickey Mouse crystal radio set and also black and white televisions. It was expected that Peter would follow in his father's footsteps. However, Peter had other ideas. He decided to go on search of adventure, and for the next few years, he sailed around the world. He returned home after five years and worked at his father's company, but he was keen to get back to the sea. He had his own fishing fleet in Tasmania, which is the island and state in the southernmost part of Australia. So it was on one of his fishing trips that he came upon the island and the long-lost boys. They were all naked, with long matted hair, and were shouting and waving. They were finally rescued. It was now September 1966. Here is an audio clip of Peter, which was recorded after they returned to Tonga with the boys. Uh, I saw a burned-out patch across the cliff through the field glasses, so we went in to take a closer look. And as we got closer, we found one of the boys, who had been keeping lookout, waving to us from the rocks. Rather frightening sight, so we loaded our rifles, <laughs> and he crawled up over the side, and he addressed me in perfect English and said, we are castaways. And now, here is some audio, which was only recorded not long ago, with Peter now in his 80s. After 20 minutes, the radio operator came back tearfully and said, you found them. These six boys have been given up for dead. Funerals have been held. But it's amazing. We cannot underestimate the absolute joy felt by the families and the country itself to have the boys return alive. The King of Tonga proclaimed Peter a national hero. However, there was one person who did not participate in the celebrations. The man who owned the boat that they had taken pressed charges against the boys. They were arrested and put in jail. That's when Peter came up with a plan to have the boys released. Peter worked as an accountant for his father's company, and he also managed the company's film rights. As such, he knew people in the TV industry and phoned the manager of Channel 7 in Sydney. Peter felt Hollywood would be very interested in the boys' story and offered the world rights to the TV station. This was agreed to, and in exchange, Peter was able to get the boys released on the condition that they cooperate in the making of the movie. A team from Channel 7 arrived a few days later to begin filming. Peter also paid the owner of the stolen boat. Now, when I was looking for videos of this story, I came across a black and white film on YouTube, which was filmed on the island with six boys taking you on a tour. Now, I thought they were just actors reenacting the story but they were the actual boys in the film. I will put this video in the Facebook group, but you can easily find it on YouTube. 
The king of Tonga wanted to repay Peter in some way. Peter requested that he be given permission to fish commercially in the Tongan waters and the king agreed. Peter then resigned from his father's company and set up a new business venture fishing for lobsters in Tonga. He bought a new boat, which he aptly named the Atta, and of course he also needed a new crew. So, who do you think he hired? Yes, the six boys. I just love this story. So now that you've heard the story, you may be wondering, as I did, about what happened to the boys and are any of them still alive? This amazing story only appeared in the media a few months ago, and since then, one of the boys, Mano, has received much media attention and requests for interviews. He is now living in the city of Brisbane, Australia, and said, Everything has come up so fast, and I don't know what to say to the people. They're really happy, very interested to find that I'm still alive. And here are some of his recollections of those months on the island. We did not get to the island until night time in the dark, so I had to swim ashore. I had to go first and I told the boys, we have to say a prayer first before I hop into the sea. He recalled being so tired from days without food and water and struggling to swim to the shore. When I reach the shore, I try to stand up, but when I stand up, the whole world is spinning, so I lay down and crawl ashore, and when I touch the dry grass, then I lie down. The others then swam out and joined him on the shore. We were very happy, but the first thing we did, we say a prayer. Thank God for what he has brought to us. They searched for food, finding seabirds. They drank the blood and ate their eggs. After that, we all fell down there and sleep until the sunrise the next morning woke us up. We were not happy where we were. If you were on a place, you don't know where it is. And also, you did not see any part of your family. I don't think you'd be happy to be there. You won't be happy until you see your family. Manu explains here what it was like when they saw the boat. I could not explain how we feel, all of us. We are full of tears, happy and like we walk through to heaven. They were so scared because we were all naked with our long hair. We all hopped into the water and swam out to the boat. Mr. Warner did not put the ladder down because they were all scared of us. But luckily, we could speak to him in English and we talk. He gave us a few questions. He gave us a few photos from Tonga. He showed us the photo of our queen, and we said, yes, that's our queen, Queen Salote, sort of testing and trying to find out if we were telling the truth or not. And here's what I found out about one of the other boys, Colo. He went on to marry and had two children and made his living as a fisherman. Given the ordeal that the boys had gone through, you'd think going back to the island would be the last thing they would contemplate. Well, not so for one of the boys. Back in 2015, Colo was contacted by a Spanish adventurer named Alvaro Cerezo, who had a very interesting proposition for Colo. 
He suggested the two of them go back to the island and live off the island as the boys had done, and can you believe that Cole actually agreed? They spent the next 10 days living there, living solely off the food that the island provided. A documentary was made, and although it's taken a while to complete, this documentary will be released this year. But sadly, Colo won't see the film as he died three years ago at the age of 71. I have a photo of the boys when they were rescued, and you can see Colo in the middle holding the guitar that they made. And can you believe that Peter kept that guitar and still has it? Wow, oh wow, I just cannot wait to see this documentary and I will certainly let you know when it's released. So now we've heard from Colo and Mano and I found out one of the other boys has also died. That leaves the other three. I wasn't able to find anything about them so perhaps they are preferring to stay out of the limelight or perhaps we will find out about them in the book. So if we now go back to the start of the story, where I mentioned that the boy's story was similar to another fictional novel and film, so did you work out what it was? I'll give you an A plus if you knew it was The Lord of the Flies. The book The Lord of the Flies was written by the author William Golding in 1954, about 10 years before the Tongan boys were shipwrecked. It's a fictional story which tells the story of a group of young boys that survive a plane crash and then are forced to learn how to survive on an island. The story describes how the boys initially work together and make rules, but then they turn on one another, descending into chaos and becoming violent. It has a theme of mankind's inherent savagery towards one another. However, Bregman wanted to challenge this notion of a grim view of humanity. He said, I began to wonder, had anyone ever studied what real children would do if they found themselves alone on a deserted island? He then began a web search and unearthed the Tongan boy's story. He then managed to find the captain, Peter Warner, living in Brisbane in Australia. He flew out and interviewed him, and even more remarkably, Mano was only living a few hours away, and he was able to interview him too. And what followed was much press coverage of the story. Bregman said, While the boys of Atta have been consigned to obscurity, Golding's book is still widely read. It's time we told a different kind of story. The real Lord of the Flies is a tale of friendship and loyalty, one that illustrates how much stronger we are if we can lean on each other. However, what would a good story be without some controversy? Bregman's coverage of the story has received some criticism, which I will now get into. Some Pacific Islanders were upset with the story as it was told from Peter's point of view and not by the boys themselves. They see it as being told through the white man's perspective and not the Pacific Islander point of view. Here is what one Tongan author had to say. Her name is Malika Giza Fatafehai. She said, The story is based on Tongans 
I'm Tongan, and I do not relate to that story because it was told through a colonial lens. It was bizarre to see a story that I've been told, told differently, and told in a way that didn't even prioritise the story of the men. When we find other Tongans, we stick together. That is very much in our value system, and it's very different to how those fictional boys would have been raised. We were raised to build community, and it's very hard to exist outside of community. Since the story surfaced, Bregman has been contacted by numerous producers and filmmakers inquiring about the film rights to the story. As Peter owns the rights to the story, it has sparked a debate about who should own Indigenous stories. Here is what Mano said. He has no issue with Peter owning the rights and said, Some people are blaming Mr Warner because he is making money off of us. He is the one who rescued us. If he didn't do that, there is no way for us to come out from the island. To those people, I say, shut up and forget about it. The Tongan author disagreed, saying, For me, it's so hard to process because whiteness believes it can own anything and everything. They essentially don't own the rights to their own story, and that's very upsetting. And here is what she said about the prospect of a film being made. I think it should be a Tongan team behind it all. A Tongan director, a Tongan scriptwriter, a Tongan cast, and it has to be told in Tongan. If this movie was to come to life, then their story should be told how they want it. It should benefit them and their families because it's something they experienced. No one else. And here is another comment from a New Zealand Oscar-winning director, Taker Waititi. He said, You should prioritise Polynesian filmmakers as to avoid cultural appropriation, misrepresentation, and to keep the Pacifica voice authentic. Mano hopes that one day he can tell their story. He said, I'd like to write a story by myself from how I feel and how I learned from it and all my experiences. And here is how Mano described his experience. A group of people don't know where they are and don't have enough food and water. Maybe they don't agree on the same thing, but they have to try to get together and to work together and make everything work so that they can survive. Bregman responded to the discussion by saying that the information he gathered about the story came from Peter and two of the boys. He also rejected the claim that Peter benefited financially from the story, saying, The most important storyline in the chapter is of the deep bond that developed between Peter and Mano. As Mano said later, He's like a father to me. So Bregman's book is called Humankind, A Hopeful Story. It will be coming out this year in August, I think. And as far as I can see, it's not totally about the Tongan boys. I'm interested to read it. But if you're intending to buy the book, I just thought I'd let you know that the shipwrecked story is only one part of the book. So where are we today? The four remaining men continue to share a special bond today. 
Their time on the island tested in so many ways, and in my opinion, they passed with flying colours. They developed patience, endurance and resilience, which set them up for what life would bring after the island. It was such an amazing story, right? There wasn't any true crime in this story, except for the boys stealing the boat, but I just had to tell this story. There's just no way that our high school kids today, living in urban areas, could have survived as they did. And in fact, if I was ever shipwrecked on an island, I would hope that I had an Indigenous person with me, otherwise I'd be a goner. But being a vegetarian, I know that I could survive on the fruits and the veggies, and also if there were nuts and seeds. And although I don't like fish, if it was a matter of survival, then of course I'd have to eat fish as well as the chickens that they found. Now I've had a personal connection to some of the stories in this podcast, and this is another one. Would you believe that when Bregman found Mano, he was living in a suburb of Brisbane, uh, which is where my first school was at. And the name of the place is called Deception Bay. Apparently, an early explorer found the bay and mistakenly thought it was a river, which is how it got its name. It's just so amazing to me that you never know who may be living in your neighbourhood and their life story. Now, I don't know whether Mano was actually living in that suburb when I was there, which was quite a few years ago, but just imagine if you were living somewhere and you had a neighbourhood barbecue and you were, you know, you invited your neighbours to come over for a barbie and you're all getting to know one another and then Manos tells you that he was shipwrecked on an island for 15 months as a schoolboy. Wow, what a story that would be to tell, wouldn't it? And to finish this story, here is an audio clip of Peter and Mano after they had recently gone on another fishing trip together. Take a listen. We've just decided to reenact some of our old uh, trips and also help us prepare for the next eternal voyage. It's like a father and it's making really deep to me in, in heart. Feel happy and nice to be together again and see. At the start of the episode, you heard a song that the boys actually wrote while they were on the island, and I will play more of this song at the end of the episode. And it's one of the boys, Colo, who is singing the song. But first, I'd like to read to you the words of this song. This is the story about the island, an island so difficult to land on. This island has two scary mountains. If I take a wrong step, I fall into the ocean. Here the dates are unknown, like forgotten. Tears and only tears are my daily sustenance. Better for me to die and rest eternally than feeling lonely on this unknown island. I'm crying from the wilderness and I don't have any hope here. But I have God to calm my sorrows. Let's preview the next episode. It's called Amish Grace. The Amish students were in their schoolhouse. What happened? And to end this episode, 
I will leave you with this conversation between a teacher and a student. Teacher, I am beautiful. What tense is this? Student, obviously past tense. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple. Kaneo e gihita e ham.